So the way I read that is that by the, when the company figures out that there was wrongdoing or potential wrongdoing, they have this window of opportunity, right? And that window of opportunity starts when they discover it, and it runs up to when they make a self-disclosure or the feds come in and they talk to them. That was Scott Garland. He and Zach Hafer both worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts. They're both now in private practice. I had them on for a joint episode where they talk about some of their experiences as AUSAs and U.S. prosecutors and what life is like now in private practice. I know you'll enjoy this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will check out one or more of our podcasts. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Welcome back for another episode. And you're in for a treat today because I have double trouble with me. I have Scott Garland and Zach Hafer. They used to work together at the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts, and now they're both in private practice and or I guess you're consulting, Scott, but I'm going to say you're in private practice because I'm a lawyer, too, and I'm in private practice. And uh, we're going to have a really interesting exploration of not only their, what they're currently up to, but where they see the DOJ heading or refocusing their efforts and equally importantly, the types of questions and advice they're giving out now. So, gents, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having us, Tom. It's good to be back with you. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Tom. Glad to be here. Zach, since you're, this, you're a first-time guest on this podcast, can I start with you, and could you tell us about your professional background and what your current role is? Yes. And again, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm currently a partner at Cooley in our white collar defense and investigations practice. I reside in the firm's Boston office. I came to Cooley a little over a year ago after 14 years with the Department of Justice, all 14 of which were in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston. I started as a lot of baby AUSAs do, doing drugs and guns, and little by little kind of worked my way up to more complicated public corruption, RICO type matters. And then in my last three years in the office between 2018 and 2021, I was the chief of the criminal division. So I oversaw the nine different criminal units in the office, as well as the, the branch office in Worcester and in Springfield. Worked very closely with Scott in his capacity, both as the deputy chief of the national security unit and as the, as the office's professional responsibility officer dealing with all the thorny compliance-related issues that come up every day in a U.S. attorney's office. And Scott, you and I had the opportunity to visit about your work at the U.S. Attorney's Office, specifically in that role, but could you remind our audiences about your professional background and your current role? Sure. Thanks, Tom. So I started out doing federal investigations of cybercrime incidents and criminal intellectual property matters in the Department of Justice back in the early 2000s in Washington, D.C., and then I transferred to the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2008 continued my work on cybercrime, and then moved into the national security role. And then from 2018 to 2022, I worked as what Zach referred to as the pro, the professional responsibility officer. So in that regard, I advised attorneys from the top to the bottom of the organization about their ethical responsibilities and how to work through those. 
Currently, I'm now a managing director at Affiliated Monitors. So I've taken the compliance work I did in the federal government, and now I've moved over to Affiliated Monitors. We really do two things. One is that we and I act as monitors in corporate government agreements, whether they're criminal, civil, administrative, to make sure that the company is living up to the promises that it makes. And the second thing that we do is to do proactive assessments of companies' corporate compliance operations to make sure that they're working the way that the companies want them to. Then we make recommendations and sometimes help them implement those recommendations as well. Zach, if I could turn back to you, I'd like to start off by looking at some issues related to corporate prosecutions from the Department of Justice, PAs, NPAs, and other tools in the quiver of a corporate prosecutor sometimes still confuse practitioners. So I was wondering if we could start with the basics. What's a DPA? What's an NPA? How does that differ, if any, from a corporate prosecution? Yeah, great question. The acronyms DPA is a deferred prosecution agreement and NPA is a non-prosecution agreement. There's some differences, Tom, but really insubstantial. At the end of the day, what the government is saying is to a corporation or a company that you're going to admit some level of wrongdoing. Those admissions would constitute facts sufficient to charge a federal. We're going to defer prosecuting that crime for some period of time in return for both the factual admission oftentimes beefed up corporate integrity, beefed up compliance, obviously fines, restitution, perhaps terminating wrongdoers, leadership changes. It's a way to hold a corporation liable essentially without indicting the company. And the real, I'm going to oversimplify it, Tom, but there are a lot of collateral consequences when a company gets indicted. This goes all the way back to the Arthur Anderson days. And so now the principles of federal prosecution, which are part of the justice manual that every AUSA and U.S. Attorney's Office in the country goes by, have guidelines for the types of considerations that line prosecutors and supervisors should take into account in deciding whether to actually charge a company versus come up with a resolution, perhaps somewhat something short of a formal indictment. And DPA and NPA are middle grounds if you will, between a full-blown indictment and a slap on the wrist. I'm intrigued by your reference to Arthur Anderson for several reasons. One, I practiced in Houston for 40 years. Probably half a dozen or maybe even more ex-DOJ prosecutors I've talked to over the years, literally since 2005, have mentioned that case. Yeah. And here we are in 2020, and it's still front of mind, if not in all of our consciousness about what can happen to a corporation. And so I'm just struck by the power of that example and how all of us still think about that going forward. No, I think that's exactly right. To me, what it embodies is like everything that I think a conscientious federal prosecutor thinks about is, is the enforcement response here proportional to, to the harm and what type of collateral impact is there going to be for whatever deterrence bang for the buck you might get? And as much as saying, hey, we're going to charge a corporation, we're going to hold the corporations liable. There's a political appeal to that. I think what Arthur Anderson counsels is, yeah, but when a 15-year secretary who's done nothing wrong is out of a job, you have to think about those things. You have to think about those collateral consequences. And I think this evolution in deferred prosecution agreements really tries to strike the balance between accountability for corporation and wrongdoers without a disproportional impact on non-wrongdoers, quite frankly. 
Scott, if I could maybe turn that question to you and ask you how you would think about using those various alternatives available to you as a U.S. prosecutor. Zach told us sort of the differences, but is the decision down to an individual AUSA? Is it made in connection with a team, or how does that work? Everything, at least in our U.S. Attorney's Office, and I think in all U.S. Attorney's Offices, is done by a team. That is, the individual prosecutor tries to put together the case and the disposition that he thinks or she thinks is appropriate, but then they're proposing that to generally the criminal chief, and it may go further up the chain to the U.S. attorney. And in some cases, like national security cases that I was involved with, it would have to go back to Washington, D.C. as well. I worked on one case, I think it was only one case, where we did a DPA. And I think this is a really good example of what Zach was talking about. This was a company that was engaging in intellectual property violations, and they were criminal. But when you looked at what was happening, you realized that the owner of the company was somebody, I think he was 30, 32. He had just bought the company. He had turned over the management of the company largely to the people who had sold him the company. He didn't really have the insight, I think, or the sophistication that he needed. And it didn't feel right to put him out of business and all of the employees out of business either. And so what we did was to engage in a DPA so that he would need to get his act and the company's act together. And it worked really well. He worked with agents to report suspected misconduct that he might have heard about, and it was a positive impact for the entire company. If I could turn to the Monaco memo, because I think that's on front of mind of all of us, the clearly the Deputy Attorney General or DAG Monaco signaled what was coming over a year ago with a speech to the white collar bar, the ABA's white collar bar section. Then the memo came out, but I wanted to maybe see if uh, get your thoughts on how the Monaco memo may have changed uh, approaches, if any. DPAs, NPAs, or other prosecutions. Certainly talked about focusing on individual prosecutions, but how do you see that playing out at this point, or is it really too early to tell? And Zach, maybe I'll start with you on that one. Yeah, I hate to take the the easy answer, Tom, but I think it is a little too early to tell. It's customary when there's an administration change for the new administration to come in and emphasize different priorities. But the, at, they really typically are only at the margins. One of the, the things about the best part of the federal law enforcement apparatus is, at least usually, is not it's impervious to political pressure, although query whether that's been the case the last six or eight years. But in any event, I have not personally seen in my practice a huge impact on them on, since Dagmatico's memo. There was certainly a lot of, a lot of the, the consensus over the last 18 months was that there was going to be a real ramp up in enforcement. I'm not seeing that yet in terms of the statistics, in terms of the sort of high profile prosecutions. Look, there's a reality One wants to hold corporate wrongdoers accountable. They're the hardest cases that the Fed's mens rea in white collar cases is very difficult. And I think a lot of times what ends up happening, oh, we got to prosecute more individuals more. And then you start conscientious AUSA, start working these cases and there's an awful lot of gray and they become tougher and tougher to prove. You see it all the time in public corruption cases. You'll have the McDonald case is a great example of that. The former governor of Virginia who's convicted in federal court in Virginia, the Fourth Circuit affirms it. Yeah, it's conduct. I used to teach this in my white collar crime class at, at BU Law School. The law students are totally offended by the conduct. 
which involved steering stuff to political supporters who had like a, a vitamin supplement and studies and all this stuff. And nobody likes the conduct. It goes up to the Supreme Court and they throw it out 9-0. These are very hard cases to prove. You're seeing it just recently in, in my and Scott's former office in the Varsity Blues appeal. I think the two defendants who lost the trial are going to win in the First Circuit based on how that oral argument went. I think it's conduct that nine out of ten people don't like, Tom, but the First Circuit, I think, is going to is going to say it's insufficient under the law in this Kodiakos thing. So anyway, long answer, I have not seen a big impact. I think that in-house compliance officers and GCs are are feeling a little bit of extra pressure and being more, perhaps even more conscientious than normal. But I, I've yet to see a major impact myself. I'm curious what you and Scott think, though. Scott, let me change the focus of the Monaco memo for you just a little bit, because I had the opportunity to vi visit with your colleague, Van Deciani, on the Monaco memo. And of course, we focused on monitors and the words around that. But in reading it and rereading it for this podcast, Scott, it struck me that the DOJ also laid out a way that a company could avoid a monitor by taking proactive steps. You mentioned as part of your practice, you do proactive monitoring. And I was wondering, is my reading of that, that reading rather, of the Monaco memo, a fair assessment from your perspective that a company could really use the criteria for a monitor selection in a proactive way, whether in the throes of an enforcement action or, or just as proactively. I think that's absolutely correct. When I first read it and saw it reported in the press, everybody was saying, oh, floodgates are open and it's going to be a monitor in every case. When I read it as who was thinking about how would you advise a corporation, I saw it, as you say, a roadmap for what to do to avoid a monitor. And I think most importantly for that is that the memo says that the prosecutor is supposed to evaluate the status of the corporations that's accused of wrongdoing, their compliance operations at the time of the conduct and the time of the, the charging decision. So the way I read that is that by the, when the company figures out that there was wrongdoing or potential wrongdoing, they have this window of opportunity, right? And that window of opportunity starts when they discover it and it runs up to when they make a self-disclosure or the feds come in and they talk to them. And what they do with that window of opportunity can be really life-changing for the company because if they then engage with good legal counsel and with good people who can do proactive assessments, they can change the profile of what that company looks like from the moment of discovery to the moment when the charging decision is made. And if they can make that company look different, that charging decision can be markedly different. That could be the difference between a criminal prosecution of the company and pleading guilty and a DPA or an NPA as well. So I wholeheartedly agree. Scott, that's a great phrase, a window of opportunity. I've never heard it phrased like that. You need to keep talking about that. That's something that really resonates. Let me change the focus a little bit to compliance issues within the prosecutor's office. And uh, maybe start with you, Scott, because I've visited with you on this topic. But what were some of the biggest issues or maybe situations that you did? And how were you able to counsel prosecutors up and down the line on the concerns they needed to focus on? Yeah, the, I would say the biggest issues that I had to deal with often were allegations of misconduct against attorneys, especially in hard-fought trials. 
And the reason for that is that in most of those cases, you have despicable behavior by the defendants. There's been a conviction, and then a judge or the other side is really attacking the prosecution for things that they think were violations. And it becomes really nasty really quickly. And prosecutors don't have in those very many opportunities to clarify what they what they think, what they what was going on, or their reasoning, except in formal filings before the court. Those that happened a lot. Zach and I talked a lot about those issues. Didn't happen very often, but a lot of it was trying to advise how do we deal with this in court, but also how do we deal with the AUSAs because they had self-reporting obligations within the Department of Justice. Because anytime a prosecutor commits misconduct or is accused of misconduct, they have to report it to a group within the Department of Justice. And one of the things that I'm really proudest of at the Department of Justice is we often talk about whether a company has a speak up culture. Do people speak up about things that they see that are wrong? The Department of Justice has instilled in its prosecutors a speak up culture that requires them to basically speak up about allegations against themselves. And so that was a lot of the most difficult work that I did. I would say the other thing that was really difficult but really rewarding is working on a set of workable filter team protocols. I'm going to take a quick step back. When prosecutors do searches and when they talk to people, sometimes they unintentionally take hold of or receive information that is protected by attorney-client privilege. And prosecutors don't want that information because they're not allowed to use it in their prosecutions and it can result in their disqualifications. So the compliance angle on this is that knowing that you're heading into an investigation, how do you set up protocols to avoid the prosecutors receiving this in the first place? And this can be very difficult if you can, the prosecutors are investigating lawyers where you know you're going to come in contact with attorney-client privilege information. That was... We spent a lot of time working through those issues, and it was really gratifying to put in sets of controls that would be workable for all the prosecutors and also protect defendants' rights. Zach, let me turn to you. I've always practiced on the civil side of things, never on the criminal side. Tried about 30 cases, and I've certainly said and done things in trial I was not proud of, whether it was the heat of the moment, whether I just wanted to get in a dig at my opposition or sometimes showing off for the jury or maybe even dig get in a dig against the judge. But how does, what's it like to receive that type of advice or critique? And how would you as a prosecutor then try to either explain your conduct or perhaps take it as a lesson learned going forward? It's a fabulous question. Quick plug for Scott. Scott was a terrific pro. I think I'm going to answer your question by explaining the tricky side of it from the criminal chief chair, because this stuff would filter up to me, sometimes through Scott, but oftentimes through a judge picking up the phone and calling me and saying she had a problem with an AUSA and what was I going to do about it? And there's a human component of this, Tom, that I think is really important. When you lead, and I viewed myself as a leader of the criminal division, 100 AUSAs, you obviously have an obligation that, to ensure that the right thing gets done. Right? At the same time, and Massachusetts is a difficult place to be an AUSA. There's some very challenging judges there. At the same time, if there's a perception that the judges are unfairly going after the AUSAs and you're just kowtowing to the judges and not backing the line, you very quickly become ineffectual as a leader. 
And to me, that was the real challenge of these things was to try to get to acknowledge when we messed up because we did, and it's a human undertaking and people make mistakes, to acknowledge those, but in a way that the AUSAs felt supported, even when they made mistakes. And that, to me, was the needle that had to be threaded, was addressing these things. Sometimes it would be as simple as an, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, and owning a mistake, whether it was to the court, whether it was in a filing, opposing counsel, whoever, even OPR in some instances. But if the default was always to throw the AUSA under the bus, that wouldn't have been effective if I wanted to stay in my job for very long. So that, that was always the balance, was you wanted to figure out, was there a mistake made here? That's always number one. Was there a mistake made? And then number, was it intentional or was it inadvertent? And then what are we going to do about it? How are we going to fix it both in this case and is this something that the entire division needs greater visibility on? Also, a very human element of all this thing is if there was a mistake and we viewed the entire division as needing visibility on it, you don't want to go into 100 AUSAs and say, Sarah really just screwed something up. Let me tell you how bad Sarah screwed this up so that the other 99 of you don't do this. So those were some of the, those were some of the challenges, but we were in very good hands with Scott as a professional responsibility officer. Thank you, Zach. Hey, can I pick up on that a little bit too, Tom? One of the other things that I think Zach is also thinking about and which made the difficulties, allegations of misconduct so large was the human element of dealing with the AUSA as well, who has spent most part a career trying to do the right thing and may have even been trying to do the right thing here during the allegations, is now hit with these allegations and trying to work with them and help them understand that their life isn't over. That they, that they need to be able to continue doing the work and that making a mistake doesn't mean the end of a good career as well. And I think I tried to do that, Zach tried to do that, everybody in the office tried to do that as, as well. And to try to do that without trying to downplay the seriousness of any of the allegations or the situations. And Tom, one final point. I know you said your trials were civil. In, in our former life, Scott's in my former life, in criminal world, uh, especially for a prosecutor, it's always Brady, right? The prosecutor's obligation to disclose exculpatory information. And like so many things, I think when, what you asked me at the very beginning, and I just realized I never answered it, how do you handle it when you get accused of these things? I never think you should be cute. And I think that's a rule that cuts across criminal and civil practice. If parsing the meaning of Brady too finely and finding some distinction where it doesn't exist, if you're sideways with the judge or OPR or some other entity, I think never works. That was a big part of how we did to say to the AOCs, hey, we got your back here. We're not going to, we're going to make sure that everyone knows you're supported, but you're going to have to own that that was Brady. We're not going to go in there and make some really hyper-technical argument as to why the information wasn't exculpatory. So that, that was, that's, I think, how you have to navigate those things, including when, and I'm right there with you, I've said and done a lot of things in court that I wish I could take back. I think you just have to own them and move on. Let me turn now to your current practice, Zach, and ask you what are the types of things you're looking at or working on, or maybe equally interesting might be the types of questions you're getting from clients now, is there a theme or is it really as broad as your own practice is? Yeah, I think so. It's interesting. Cooley historically has very deep bench of life sciences and healthcare and tech clients. So an awful lot of what I do on a day-to-day basis involves the anti-kickback statute and the False Claims Act. But And now there's a new emphasis on clinical trial data fraud. That's something that we're seeing come up again and again. You have the extreme example with, with outright 
falsification of clinical data, which I've seen in a few cases, that's just human nature. You're going to have fraud every now and again. What's more, what an, an area that I'm seeing a lot of emphasis on has to do with research funding, especially with all the Boston, such a hub now of life sciences activity. And we're seeing more and more scrutiny and more and more clients of our clients in this life sciences space asking our advice on can we jointly fund this study with some other entity and how might that be viewed by a regulator? What are the, What is that entity getting for the co-funding of the study? And so things like that I'm seeing recur. And then in my, the investigation stuff really cuts across sectors. It could be accounting impropriety. The FCPA stuff is going strong, at least from what I see with my clients in, in involving China most of the time. So many international corporations operate in China and the way business is done in China is very different than how it's done here. And the integrity of these compliance programs in, in China are definitely I'm seeing a lot of scrutiny. Scott, I've had the chance to visit with you on two different podcast series. Both of those recordings were a little bit earlier in your AMI career. And I think you're at maybe six or plus months at AMI now. And if that's about right, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the surprises or things that have interested you the most about moving to AMI, recognizing, of course, it's not a law firm. It's a firm specializing in independent integrity monitors. It's been a great transition, and one of the big surprises that I've had with not having worked with my former colleagues before is how incredibly skilled they are in the area of compliance. They come from all areas of government, whether it's state or federal, and some defense lawyers as well. And I've been really impressed and surprised at how deeply they think about these issues in a whole variety of contexts, because we do work across so many different industries and so many different types of violations. And there's generally a person there who has the expertise to, to deal with that. A second thing that I've really been surprised to learn is about some of the companies that we deal with. I guess when I was inside the government, I always assumed that company did things in rational ways and everything was always thought out. And I think one of the things that you start to learn about as you do this more is that even big companies, there can be a huge lag between business opportunities and business operations and compliance and how some of those processes that you would think would be completely automated are still done on an Excel spreadsheet or on a notebook or something like that. That was a good shock to me. Jensen, fortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted any more information on yourselves or follow up on any of the topics that we have touched on, what would be the best place for them to go? And Zach, I'll start with you. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate this. This was a lot This was a lot of fun. So thanks for having me. My, I'm on LinkedIn, Zachary Hafer on LinkedIn. And my professional bio is on Cooley's website, Cooley.com, and then Zachary Hafer there. So I, I really appreciate it, Tom. Thanks for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. I th again, thank you for another chance to visit with you and talk. And it's good to be back with talking with Zach as well. My information is also available on LinkedIn at Scott L. Garland and at Affiliated Monitors. My email address is sgarland at affiliatedmonitors.com as well. I think my phone number is also available through the website. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with anybody who's interested in since I've told you before we started, I had two criteria for a podcast. One, how much fun did I have? And two, how much did I learn? And we hit 11 on both. So I wanted to thank you guys. If you ever want to come back, just let me know. I'd love to have you back.
Sounds good. Thanks, Tom. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report will go on a seasonal break, and our next episode will post in 2023 on Monday, January 9th. I hope you and your family have a great holiday season, safe and enjoyable. We look forward to seeing you after the new year. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.